a joy to open the Word of God with you this morning. We are putting on pause our study of the book of Mark. We'll pick that up next week. Uh, Some of you might be sitting there thinking, now wait a minute, this is the fourth Sunday in January. I thought Sanctity of Life Sunday was on the third Sunday of January, and you would be correct. But we're going to defy the odds, because today is January 22nd. 44 years ago on January 22nd was the enactment of Roe v. Wade. 33 years ago was the first Sanctity of Life Sunday enacted by Ronald Reagan, and this is what he said of that day. We have been given the precious gift of human life, made more precious still by our births in or pilgrimages to a land of freedom. It is fitting then on the anniversary of the Supreme Court decision in Roe v. Wade that struck down state anti-abortion laws that we reflect anew on these blessings and on our corresponding responsibility to guard with care the lives and freedoms of even the weakest of our fellow human beings. 44 years ago today, some 59 million children that had been murdered in the womb 44 years ago today, in the case of Roe v. Wade, a child in the womb, which up to that time was noted as the safest place on earth, was not to be considered a human person and could be murdered. The Word of God, of course, is not silent on that matter, and that is in many ways why we come to the Word of God this morning. 59 million is beyond really a human's ability to comprehend We don't have a category for that number to fit in. We can't look at something and say, oh yeah, I know what that looks like. I know what two or three things look like. I might be able to say, this is what 50 or 60 people look like, but 59 million. I would agree with President Reagan that it is our responsibility to reflect on the precious gift of human life, to guard with care the lives and freedoms of even the weakest of our fellow human beings. However, I agree with President Reagan, not because he said it, because it's, but because it's the truth of Scripture. And that's what we want to see this morning. I trust that it will be clear that this issue is not some scientific issue. The issue of abortion is not a personal issue. It's a scriptural one, first and foremost. We're now in the fifth decade, the fifth decade of this national atrocity. An atrocity that has come to the point now that human, that history cannot but remark as this being the greatest evil of all mankind. And it's happened in our land we must remember that abortion is, not, is simply an outworking of our sin nature. Abortion is simply an outworking of our sin nature, of my sin nature. Namely, that I am born bent toward rebellion against God. And it might look fairly cute at two years old, but by the age of 22 or 32 or 33, it's not cute. Anymore. It's no longer about defiance over vegetables and picking up toys. It's now about murder and sexual promiscuity outside of marriage. We've been noting in our time of Bible study at 9.30 in the mornings that our foe is a formidable foe. Go with me now to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3 tells us 
in verse 15. That it has been the enemy's desire to destroy the bearer of the image of God, human beings. Verse 15 of chapter 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis 1.27, we are told that we are created by God in the image of God. He created us male and female. He created them. And he does so for a great and glorious purpose. The third question of the catechism, you might remember, is why did God make you in all things? Namely, answer, for his own glory. It is God's desire that we reflect his glory to all the world. That we as his image bearers present a clear picture of the magnificence and transcendence of the almighty God. Therefore, do we honestly really think that if the enemy is an enemy is an enemy of ours, that he's going to then sit idly by and let us do that glorifying work well or easily? Of course not. It's been Satan's desire from the moment God created man to destroy all those who bear the image of God. And if he cannot destroy them, he'll do what he can to mar them. Therefore, According to Ephesians 6, we do not fight Planned Parenthood or supporters of abortion. That's not our enemy. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's war. But don't miss the fact abortion isn't the war. Abortion is simply 59 million on the casualty list of war. The news that we read on abortion, maybe you have even read this week, is simply the smoke on the battlefield. The war is namely for the souls of men. The destruction of men versus the salvation of men by Jesus Christ alone for his glory alone. That is the war that is really taking place. If you name the name of Jesus Christ today as your Lord and Savior, if you have repented of your sins and turned to him alone as your salvation from his eternal and righteous wrath, then this war continues for you. We'll sing here in a few moments, he will hold me fast. And for the believer, he is holding them fast in the face of that war, in the face of the enemy who desires to destroy us, and yet under the blood of Christ has no ability to do so. It's no longer for our eternal souls, but rather for the marring and the maiming to the fullest extent possible of the glory of God in your life. He protects you each day. We've studied now the book of Mark and we will, you'll remember this child who was thrown into the fire or into the water to drown. The enemy trying to destroy this young person's life. Mar and maim the image bearer. And yet God, through Christ, intervening for him as he does for us. Satan, by all the crafty tricks and lies possible, will seek either by direct opposition or subtle diversion to distract us from the battle. We would love to see someone come into this church that is wanting to have an abortion and the enemy would love us to think the person is the problem. If we just help her to realize how bad she is 
or he is. We get distracted away from the battle, from engaging in the battle against the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes for the glory of God. We cannot forget this. And one of the subtle tricks Satan loves to play in our minds when we think about abortion concerns the people who partake of this convenient atrocity. And so it would be very unusual. In fact, it would be shocking if there is not someone sitting in this room under the sound of my voice who's not been involved in some way, whether a man or a woman involved in the atrocity of abortion. And so let me say, before I continue much further, that this message is not for the sake of placing shame on your head of humbling you or placing guilt that somehow you do not have. There is plenty of shame and guilt that you probably are already dealing with. But rather this message, as we will see, is to show that all sin, including that, is placed and is paid for on the cross of Jesus Christ. That all who believe on the name of Christ will receive forgiveness. And so if you are a Christian that who has had an abortion, either before coming to Christ or after, be reminded or called to the fact that the blood of Christ has washed that sin away. As far as the east is from the west. That there is hope and forgiveness in the gospel of Jesus Christ for all sin. If you've not come to Christ and you have had an abortion or been a part of one, then let me say to you today that that guilt and that pain that you carry will only ever be able to be borne by Jesus Christ. You cannot carry that guilt. It will crush you as it probably is. But come to Jesus Christ. He can be the one who carries that well. He actually can be the one who takes that sin and turns it to glory for his good and yours as well. One of the reasons abortion is more than just about the death of a life is because life, human life, is more than just about a physical being. Human life is more than just a bunch of cells moving across and occasionally bumping into one another across the face of the globe. Human life has a soul. It has a spiritual dimension to it. Therefore, to devalue or to murder human life is to seek to separate the spiritual from the physical. To destroy the physical is to mar also the beauty of how the physical helps us to see the wonder of the spiritual. And let me, by way of example, help you to understand that. God, we know, we will see in a minute, is the author of life. God is the one who creates life. God is the one who speaks life into existence. And so then when we destroy life, one of the purposes of human life is to reflect upon God as the creator, not just of human life, but by seeing you this morning, I'm reminded that he also creates spiritual life. He takes something that is nothing, in nothing that is there spiritually, and makes something spiritually. Namely, a delight in God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. So to destroy that life is to, to then mar that picture that we can see of God as the author of spiritual life. If you're taking notes this morning, much of the remainder of 
remainder of our time is going to be looking at nine things and I would just encourage you to jot these down. I won't go into them in too great of depth but nine reasons God's word and character declare abortion sin to be wrong. Nine reasons God were, God's word and character declare abortion or you can insert any sin you like to be wrong. And we could certainly double, triple this list, of course. But just for the purposes of time this morning and the encouragement from his word, let us look at this. Number one, as we've just noted, God is the author of life. God is the author of life. Isaiah 42, verse 5. I have sought as putting these verses together with these points to try to bring about verses that may not be the ones that jump immediately to your mind. So when we think of God as the author of life, you might think rightly of Genesis. And yet here, Isaiah 42, verse 5. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Notice there, the, spi- the spiritual and the physical combined in the same verse. God being the author of physical life as well as spiritual life. God is the author of life. Number two, God declares that life is very good. Not simply good, but very good. Genesis 1, 27. So God created man, there's the author, in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. This was on the sixth day of creation and a few verses further down the line we read, and God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. The only day out of all six days of creation that he determines that what he had made was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. That doesn't mean that God declares life to be very good if you have it all right. Or if you can dress well. Or if you have everything in order. Or if you're perfect. Or if you're a good Christian. No, he says all of life, human life is very good. From from the very beginning to the very end. All of it, very good. Number three. God values human life and has ordained protection through his law. God values human life and has ordained protection through his law. Genesis 9, verse 5 and 6. Genesis 9, verse 5 and 6. We see the God enacting corporal punishment. And for your lifeblood, 
I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And we see that then carried out in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy 5 when God tells us, do not murder. God values human life and has ordained protection through his law. Number four, God sees all even inside the womb. God sees all even inside the womb. We had uh, read for us this morning by Mark Welch, Psalm 139, 13 through 16. And I want you to turn in your Bibles there because I want you to see the context of Psalm 139, 13 through 16. I won't reread 13 through 16, but just noting that he formed my inward parts. You fitted me together in my mother's womb. Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance, God seeing in the womb. But look at the context. Verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? That's the question that the psalmist is asking God. Where can I go that you are not? Can I go to heaven? Nope, you're there. Can I go to hell? No. Take the wings of the morning, dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Even there you are there. Can I go into the womb and you can't see me? No. God sees everything, everywhere. There's nothing that God does not see. Therefore, we would be wise to remember that God sees the murder of the unborn. Verse number five. Number five, God has plans for each purpose, for each person, excuse me. God has plans for each person and they are grand and glorious. Jeremiah 1 verse five, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. God, knowing the plan he had for Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29 verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Speaking of Israel. God has plans for each person. Review. God is the author of life. God declares that life is very good. God values human life and has ordained protection through his law. God sees all, even inside the womb. God has plans for each person. Three more. Four more. Number six, God has compassion for the sick and frail. God has compassion for the sick and frail. Matthew 14, verse 14. When he went ashore, meaning Christ, he saw a great crowd and had compassion on them and healed their sick. Mark 8, verse 2. I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. God has compassion upon the frail and upon the sick. And certainly the unborn are frail. Very frail. God holding them together in the womb of the mother and he has compassion upon them. Number six leads to number seven then. Number seven, God delights in children. And what I want you to see here on this seventh point, God delighting in children, is that it's more than just the fact that they have been made in the image of God. That's certainly the reason, one of the reasons why he delights in them. But there are other reasons as well. There are spiritual dimensions here. 
For instance, children are used as an example of trusting the father of faith. Matthew 18, two through four. And calling to him, Jesus calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He delights in them because they are used as an example of trusting faith, full trust in the heavenly father. He delights in them and he delights to interact with children. Mark 9, verse 36, Christ took a child, put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them and then begins to teach the disciples. We looked at this last week. But notice also why God delights in children. 1 John 3, 1 through 2, see what kind of love the Father has given to us so that we should be called children of God and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. God delights in children because God delights in his children, those who have been saved by the person and work of Jesus Christ. And for you this morning, the question is, are you one of his children? Have you put your full and complete trust in the work of Jesus Christ to pay for your sin, whether it's abortion or a, in the light of abortion, some minimal thing. All of it against a holy God, sin, deserving of death, deserving of the full payment of sin, deserving of the full wrath of God against that sin, and yet Christ coming and taking for us by his grace the payment for that sin. And it's a gift. It is available for those who will but humble themselves and trust, placing by belief, their faith in Jesus for them, for salvation, then walking in repentance from those sins. Walking simply as a person who has been changed. Two more, God. Number eight, God appoints the time frame of our lives. Psalm 139, verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. God is the one who appoints the time frame of life. Man should never take that time frame into their hands or seek to take the time frame into their hands. Last one, number nine. God delights in and gives grace for eternal worship by the lives of those he has created all for his glory. Let me read that again, it's long. God delights in and gives grace for eternal worship by the lives of those he has created, all for God's glory. And not only created physically, but created spiritually. Revelation 22, one through five. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp, no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. 
God delights in and gives grace for eternal worship by the lives of those he has created. Therefore, we should not be about the business of destroying life. Brothers and sisters, abortion is a rebellion against God and his design. And as Christians, we are, we are not to be about the destruction of life, but the support of life. As Christians, we are now no longer dead in sin, but as those who are alive in Christ Jesus, part of God's redemptive work in others' lives to bring spiritual life through the gospel. Our rebellion manifests itself in the belief that I know what's best for me. I know what's most loving for me. And God says, he is love. And submitting to his love and his ways is what's most loving for us. Our society for some time has been infatuated with this concept of love. There was the sexual revolution in the 60s, which is in many ways just continued through today. We've redefined in this country what love really is. And we now no longer call it by what God calls it. We call it acceptance or self-gratification or living in the moment. And our improper concept of love states that as long as one does something in the name of love, then it is somehow baptized in a vat of goodness and everything is now well. Meaning I, can, uh, I love my body. I love my future. I love what I want. Therefore, I can now abort this child and because I love these things the abortion is okay C.S. Lewis in context of John's comments in 1 John says this John is saying that God is love and has long been balanced and has long been balanced in my mind against the remark of a modern author that love ceases to be a demon only when it ceases to be a god which of course can be restated in the form Love begins to be a demon the moment it begins to be a god. This balance seems to be an indispensable safeguard. If we ignore it, the truth that God is love may slyly come to mean for us the converse that love is God. We may give our human loves the unconditional allegiance which we owe only to God. Then they become gods, then they become demons then they will destroy us and also destroy themselves. For natural loves that are allowed to become gods do not remain loves. They are still called so, but can become, in fact, complicated forms of hatred. Eric McTaxis, quoting this in reference to C.S. Lewis, says this, Human love begins to be a demon the moment it begins to be a God. In other words, if we tell ourselves that anything is permissible for the sake of love, we are allow ourselves to justify any evil. A society that advocates both gross incivility and killing in the name of love is a society that's forgotten what the word means. And yet First John tells us very clearly that God is love. John 15 Verse 13 and verse 14 tell us that greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Christ laid down his life for us. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is that which, and only that which, eclipses even this unspeakable evil, the murder of the unborn. It eclipses the unspeakable evil of hating my neighbor. It eclipses the unspeakable evil of being unkind to my wife. Or speaking with anger to my children. 
It eclipses the unspeakable evil of selfishness in doing little when I should do more to fight abortion. The grace of God eclipses all eclipses all else. And here it is at the gospel where we as believers in Jesus Christ can gain a long-term commitment and motivation and unquenchable drive to fight against the societal evils of our day like abortion. Because it is here at the gospel where I see my sin in the light of God's holiness. Where I realize that my unspeakable evil is not justifiable against others' sin. But in fact, my unspeakable evil condemns me to death. Because it is in opposition to the perfection of God. It is here at the gospel where I realize that my sins have been rolled away as the great hymn states. Not because of my righteousness but because of God's love in granting me his righteousness and taking my guilt. It is then that we should go and then in motivation through the gospel to go out to a lost and dying world and instead of looking at those obtaining abortions as enemies, we see ourselves doing the same thing if not for the grace of God. We see ourselves also in need of the truth of Scripture. And out of self-preservation, if for no other reason, we in love extend a message, the message of the gospel that will save, that will save for eternity and not just for another breath or two. So as Christians, we, we should march, brothers and sisters, against abortion. We'll do so in a couple months here in Fredericksburg. We should hold up a sign. I would encourage you to stand for truth in the face of evil. I would encourage you to give toward good works that are fighting this. But not because people stopping this evil will make us more comfortable or feel better or even because this evil will hopefully one day stop. Evil won't stop on this side of heaven. It's not going to anytime soon, ever. It's impossible to do. We should march. We should hold a sign. We should volunteer, give funds, stand for truth and all the creative means and ways possible to proclaim loudly that evil cannot be stopped in a person until the darkness of sin is driven away by the light of the new birth in Christ. We stand to proclaim to show that freedom from the weight and burden of sin is found in the liberating power of Christ alone. We should stand and walk and give to say that an abortion or alcoholism or drug abuse or pornography or homosexuality and any and all other idols of the heart that we fabricate to mask the pain of sin is and will forever be lacking in its ability to satisfy. We stand to proclaim that true freedom and true strength and true power and ultimately true satisfaction and true joy comes only through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we have been reminded this morning from your word why, again, abortion is wrong. It is sin. But we've also been reminded that, Father, the reasons for it being wrong are found in reflecting upon your character and in reflecting upon your character we also see the solution to abortion and all other sin, namely 
the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we pray that we would be motivated. Motivated to come alongside those who have been a part of this atrocity and to comfort them and to give them an arm and to help them to see where their burden can be lifted. We ask that you would help us to be motivated by the truth of what Christ has done in the gospel to to then be bold. We ask these things, Father, for your glory. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.